Thanks for tuning in to the Medevac podcast powered by the Robert Irvine Foundation, whose mission is to support and strengthen the physical and mental well-being of our nation's heroes and their families. I'm one of your hosts, David Reed. And I'm your other host, Christian Myers. Thank you very much for joining us today on the Medevac podcast. If you're new here, there's a price for the show. You have to share it with a friend or family member if you get something out of today's episode. And uh, I think we're going to get something out of today's episode. I hope so. Yeah. Our guest today is Sergio Sainz. Welcome, Sergio. Thank yeah. you all so much. I've been great host so far. I appreciate yeah. y'all having me. Of course. Thanks Absolutely. for being here. Sergio is an Air Force veteran. He spent uh, about six years on active duty from 2004 to 2010 as a SATCOM engineer, a, a private contractor after that. And now he runs a psychedelic integration church. Am I saying that correctly? Uh, that's that's correct. Yeah, okay. an entheogenic church. Entheogenic yeah. church. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Right. Well, yeah, we're excited to hear your story, man. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, of course. No, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here again, and uh, I look forward to sharing my story with you guys. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's rewind it uh, before the church was set up, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're laughing. Yeah, I know. There's a lot. There's a lot there. <laughs> a lot. A lot is involved with uh, with coming to this point in my life. So, um, how yeah. far would y'all like me to go? Yeah. So, I want to rewind it back to kind of what inspired you to join the military. Was was it family, friends? sense of service, getting a college education, or just wanting to be a badass? You know, for me, I I had an interesting reason for joining the Air Force. I kind of, I grew up very privileged. Mm. You know, my parents were successful. They had a a successful business. And uh, anytime I got in trouble, it was was erased, you know, and and taken (laughs) care of for me. So at, at the point that I graduated from high school, I started recognizing that that's not how the world works outside of the small town that I grew up in. So... For me, I joined the Air Force uh, for the opportunity to to discover responsibility for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, to uh, to feel what it's like to have to earn, you know, the respect behind my name, and, mm, yeah. and that part of it was appealing for me. Okay, yeah. So that's not very typical for someone who comes from a privileged background, to be honest. Yeah, yeah and I was I was one of the first in in my family line to join the military too. So you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. I didn't have any influence other than, you know, once I mentioned that I was going to be joining uh, the Air Force or the military. Initially, I was looking at the Marines for the same reason, just to be a badass. <laughs> but um, my parents, once they realized that I was I was um, committed to the decision, decided to put me in touch with the general. And uh, the general was a general of the army. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he sat me down and he said, look, if you're going to do this, you need to make sure that the job that you select is is going to net you income when you leave the, when you leave the service. Mm, yeah. And if I'm recommending something, it's the Air Force. And I was just like, okay. Man, like, if we go. all had just beautiful <laughs> mentors like that at the beginning of our service. You know, I walked in and they're like, infantry? I'm like, hell yeah. No trade skills when I get out? <laughs> right. No, of course. How much fun do I get to have, though? That's yeah. That was the question I had when I walked in. Yeah, (laughs) and for me, the appeal was travel, you know. But I ended up just traveling straight up the East Coast from South Texas, you know, like literally in in chronological order. You know, I I was from uh, deep South Texas, a small town called Premont, just north of the Rio Grande Valley. 
And um, I end up in San Antonio for basic training. I went to Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi <laughs> for tech school. Mm. I went to Georgia for for my uh, electronics principles. And yeah. then I ended up my first duty station in Florida. So I was like, man, I can't leave you <laughs> you know, just the Gulf of across. Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in Florida, what was your day-to-day in the Air Force? Um, so I was in Florida briefly for about a year and a half. And um, and at that point, it was it was my first duty station. So I was, um, I was learning um, how to operate all of the equipment that, that I was working with track 170s very large mm-hmm. aperture um, direct and tropospheric uh, satellite yeah. uh, systems as well as uh, you know um, different types of networking you know mm-hmm. like working on routers working on switches mm-hmm. and learning the ins and outs and preparing myself for for deployment okay. so there was a lot of just qualifying you know in mm-hmm. the in the first year it was it, we had this book that we had to log all the things that we learned and you know yeah and uh, just kind of incrementally get more familiar with the uh, the equipment that we would be operating with in in theater mm-hmm. you know so that was um, that was the day-to-day and then we did a lot of exercises you know like where we did mock deployments and, mm-hmm. and things like that um, just in preparation but a majority of my time in the Air Force was was in Georgia at Robbins Air Force Base and okay. and that was a combat communications squadron so um, or a combat communications group altogether. And uh, there it was exercise after exercise, you know, making sure that we were proficient and preparing for deployments. Mm-hmm. Um, there were four squadrons and each squadron would deploy a, a, a quarter, you know, so it was a, a really regular uh, deployment schedule. And we, mm-hmm. would, we would deploy in support of, of people like you, you know, like uh, all of the communications that were that were necessary outside of the wire, we were we were part of maintaining and uh, and repairing. So so all the you know the red lines and green lines and in every military installation are you are you like participating in that and getting that all set up? Right, exactly. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> so the week long deployments and yeah. like you know mock deployments, those exercises, absolutely. And and we uh, we would. We would work with all parts of, of the Air Force too. So, like mm-hmm. supply, logistics were there. You know, the uh, um, all the high speed people would show up in the, like the last day and, and just kind of say like, "Yeah, I could work here. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. this, this would be acceptable." And then leave. You know, because they had they had much uh, more detailed exercise you mm-hmm. know, operations. But uh, but nonetheless, it was it was heavily involved with all all of the the people like the the workings, the inner workings of what would have. Um, accompanied us in in theater. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now yeah. the difference between a regular comm squadron and a combat comm squadron, you guys actually go out outside the wire during right, exactly. Yeah, and that's that's essentially what got me in trouble upstairs. You know, it's like uh, a, like yeah. I was. I, you know, we pretended a lot to be ready for for combat. Sure. You know, like and and uh, the in my opinion, really, you know, like because some people handled it better than I did. Mm. But uh, nonetheless, once I went on my first deployment, it was in Bagram Air Force Base or Bagram Airfield, excuse me, in in Afghanistan. Um, as soon as I left the wire, I realized how ill-prepared I was for mm. the situation. You know, mm-hmm. like we we had a uh, mobility training for for that, like maybe 10 days long, you know, where we pretend to be out and it's like austere conditions sure. and we're getting attacked with miles gear and things like that, you know, but that was it. And after that, it was, there was no more pretending to be a battle. So mm-hmm. once you start hearing, you know, gunfire and mortars and, and even like, you know, 
F-15s whizzing by, it, it changes things, you know, it, mm -hmm. it brings you into reality very quickly. And, oh, yeah. and uh, for me, there was a lot of pretending to be cool in those situations too, you know, like just just being out there knowing, you know, when any time that I had to leave the the wire, you know, or like Bagram, mm -hmm. it was to a cop or a fob to repair equipment that was either, you know, user error, it wasn't working mm -hmm. or a mortar hit it, you know? So like sure. you, you never know, you just know that the comms are down and you have kind of an idea because there's a technician there. Mm -hmm. But um, my job was to go in, assess the damage, figure out, you know, what was salvageable, what we could do to, uh, to maintain communications and then, um, come back at the parts and then and then make the repair. You know later on whenever a, a bird could take us back. You know, okay. mm -hmm. but um, my first my first ever I remember it was uh, it was a I think it was called Bullard if I'm not mistaken, but um, there was no lights there and I got there at night so I was working with a red headlamp. You know and <laughs> yeah. just thinking like man they were shooting here earlier and I'm I'm walking around outside on top of buildings because there were antennas you know okay like with a red light on my head I yeah. was like that's a, if I needed a target that's a pretty decent yeah. target and I understand you know that why we use red lights and things like that but it doesn't make you more comfortable yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. yeah it was pitch black and like that if you opened a door it illuminated the entire you know area because you know the lights were on inside mm -hmm. but oh yeah yeah, so it was a really, really interesting exercise mentally for me to to go through. Mm. You know, just like yeah. um, you thought you were ready. You know, like sure. well, pe situation. people take that for granted so often. Just being able to walk to their trash can at night. Yeah. You know, uh, in Afghanistan or Iraq, you can't do that. It's right. everything's yeah. a threat, right? Um, so that's pretty interesting, especially like given your your family background. How was that for you? Kind of transitioning into that military service where, you know, it, it might have been very cush in the beginning, but then you get thrown into this brand new world <laughs> where you're expected to report to authority now, which you probably, I mean... It was didn't different. respond to the best in the beginning, right? For sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a funny story to share about that. But but interestingly enough, I also grew up on a on a cattle ranch. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't foreign to like, you know, getting your hands I got in trouble yeah. in high school. I either had to go and work in my my parents' insurance agency mm -hmm. filing things or <laughs> or fix a fence. Okay. You know, yeah. like or or go and work cattle for a day or whatever mm -hmm. the case was. So it, it, I was not foreign to to that part of it. Especially the being screamed at, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, okay. like because working cattle is high stress, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and like so, it, and you can get hurt really quickly. These are huge animals, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so there's all of us who are screaming at each other just to make sure that that we all get to have lunch together, you know. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, um, so yeah, that that part of it wasn't wasn't the issue for me. The the not having a name behind who I was was the issue. Mm. Not being a recognizable, respected person was the issue. Mm. And um, I remember the first day that I showed up to basic training, you know, I, at that time in my life, I was like a skater, you know, so I had ripped jeans and, you know, it's specifically the back. Just an pocket. attitude that comes yeah, with it. exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah. So it's so just a knuckle sandwich delivering kind of guy, <laughs> yeah. you know. But so I, I show up and, and we head to the DFAC and everyone's screaming at me at the same time. And I just kind of like held my bearing, you know, I, I was, I was being screamed at, so there's not much you can do, mm -hmm. but then they started like with the shoving and stuff. And I was just like, 
chill out and I told him to chill out and he was like, oh, you think you're badass? You know, like, <laughs> hey, like this is my house. You're not going to last a week. And then in that moment, I just remember him grabbing my back pocket and ripping the right leg off of my jeans. <laughs> like, so I, I was wearing my right pant leg as a sock, you know, like for the rest of the time and they wouldn't let me fix it. You know, like it, it was the, the first day of, of basic training, yeah. you know, so you, you had three seconds to eat the plate. Oh, yeah. You know, everyone has to stand up. You had to throw away all the delicious food. And like, you know, <laughs> it was just this really high stress thing. But that was that was the key moment where I was like, man, you're not you're not shit in this moment. You know, like yeah. this is this is you the clean slate you wanted is is right here delivered for you. Yeah. Yeah, you found it, huh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny they keep you looking like kind of a bag of ass walking around your first couple of days, <laughs> sure. ripping your pant leg. And it was a couple yeah. of days because they didn't they didn't uh give us our uniforms until the third day. Yeah, you until know, like, like day so three or four. That was it, man. Yeah. I was just walking around with a yeah. cold right leg. <laughs> it sounds like you got what you're looking for though. You're like, yeah. hey, I'm I'm open to a new situation. Please you know, please change my, my perspective, my point of view. And you got what you asked for. It sounds like. Of course. Yeah. And then it, and then from that point, it became just proving that guy wrong. You know, yeah. he thought I was going to break and, and, you know, I, he found, you know, almost the point of, of which I would have, but mm. then it was just, I'm going to prove that guy wrong. You know, like that drill sergeant. Isn't it so insightful though, when you get to the age where you realize oh. That he did that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> like you're like, I'm gonna get him back. And he's like, Yeah, get me back. Like that's exactly. what he wanted. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you're like, damn it, now I'm not gonna do anything. No, it's a hell of a motivator. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like it. Absolutely. And, and I mean, they have been doing it for quite some time. It's just <laughs> like breaking us down, you know? And so that's that's pretty interesting. So during your career, you know, you're getting this eye-opening experience overseas. Uh, you feel the self-development happening, obviously. Uh, any sort of situations happen, you know, outside the wire where you were just like, you know, maybe this is not what I signed up for or? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I remember, you know, one thing to, to key into about about my military experience is that I I had an M9. I, I was I was deployed with an M9, mm-hmm. and my M16 was was in a locker always. Okay, yeah, yeah, because I I worked with my hands and I worked. Uh, you know, I, my job was expedited. You know, so mm-hmm. I was only expected to be there for for short periods of time. Sure. So it was almost like a comsec situation. You know, like where if they got to me, it was to to you know basically defend our our security keys and sure. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I specifically remember one time that the, that the fob was being attacked and, um, and the guy next to me said, I'm going to take a higher, uh, higher, you know, vantage point. Mm -hmm. So if you see me start rolling down the hill, you need to come and grab my saw and, and defend the area. And I was just like, oh, geez, I've never, I don't even know how to use it. Yeah. You know, like, what's going on here? You know, but in that moment, I remember just like pressing my back so hard up against the, like the bunker, you know, just thinking like, you have to do this, you yeah. know, like this is, this is what you signed up for. So, yeah. so there was, um, there was this internal battle, mm-hmm. you know, in my head, there was also a point where like, you know, when we were working on line of sight, you had to climb up a tower and that's something that, that shoots directly across like oh, a yeah. flight line or, or to a base. So in that moment, I remember hearing like bullets whizzing by 
and just thinking like, what, what is a dragonfly doing up here? You know, like <laughs> yeah. in my head, I was just oh, yeah. like, yeah. Init- my initial thought was that surely I'm not being shot at, you know? And then I heard a tink on the metal and I remember just sliding down with the, with my, uh, my hands and my, my feet, you know, just all the way down this, this little tower okay. and just like almost having a heart attack, just in that moment of realization that, you know, there was, there was, it was that close to making impact. Mm. It was, it was a really, really interesting moment for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Was that in Bagram? That was in Kandahar. Okay. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah sounds like Back it. in what year was this? Uh, that was, uh, that would have been Kandahar in 2009. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Which is, which is, was a pretty hot area at the no, time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It was yeah, really hot then. Yeah. But yeah. the, uh, NATO base was great. Yeah. And and you you were there probably I mean that was that was probably a year before they put the chilies in. Yeah. <laughs> 3 years before. Well, and I got to I got to go back when I was a when I was a contractor, yeah. you know, I was at I was in Salerno, which is eastern Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now that's a cush place. And you right? went in uh yeah, Salerno. Mm-hmm. So you went back in 2000 in 2010, like so, I actually, okay. I actually had a conversation about getting hired while I was there, active duty. You know, mm-hmm. and okay. I was working uh, alongside another civilian, and he said, like, at, at that point, I was already I decided that I was leaving the Air Force. Mm-hmm. You know, I I had gone through a DUI situation. You know, when I got back from my my deployment, you know, I was leaning heavily on alcohol to mm-hmm. cope with with PTSD. Sure, and um, I ended up. After like a sports day, I, I, you know, I was a, I was an athlete, you know, from a small town, if you're good at one thing, you have to be good at everything, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, so I ended up, you know, performing really well on the sports day. And, uh, my first sergeant invited me out for a beer and I said, man, I'm exhausted. You know, I'll, I'll go and I'll have one beer and I'll leave, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I did for the first time ever. You know, like I, I was an alcoholic, don't get me wrong, but in this instant, I show up, you know, I say hi to everybody. He ordered me uh, a pint. Mm. I drank the pint and I said, I got to go, you know, and I lived like maybe five minutes away from the bar that we were at. So when I left, I got pulled over. And because it was so fresh in my mouth, I, I took the breathalyzer thinking I only had one beer. I'm exhausted. Let's get this over with. Yeah. And okay. I got hung out to dry, man. Oh, like man. so I ended up having to deploy again. Like once I went to court, the judge let me know, like the old school style, you know, and this is in Georgia. That's probably why you know, I, I wasn't expecting this to be the case, but nonetheless he said, We'll we'll wipe this off your record if you hop on the next deployment. You know, so I was interesting. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So and, I up, but that's good. I mean, Georgia's a military state yeah. and they like well, you know, obviously home of the infantry and these guys just <laughs> Ruin it for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Let's be honest. The trainees ruin it for everybody. <laughs> Make a lot of bad choices. <laughs> yeah. So so they'll they just like they could smell a DUI just <laughs> coming out yeah. of the bar. Yeah. No, and it was it was that whole story is it's interesting too, because even the the cop that had pulled me over um was kicked out of the Air Force. He was an MP that would that didn't cut it, you know, and like so he had this angst against the yeah. Air Force anyways, you know, and I remember the entire ride back thinking, I can't wait for my attorney to hear this recording because it's <laughs> obvious to me that this guy has like a personal yeah. vendetta against the Air Force, right? He's taking it out on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, that's not the case. Like they had God. all that and they were just like, you know what, man? Like, like It's the same to, team. Yeah. That's something I don't get, you know, is you sh- we should, you know, 
you know, we're, I, I'm here to support blue if you right. let me, you know, no, <laughs> you exactly. make it so difficult sometimes. Yeah, no, they they do in situations like that. And if you can't hack it as a cop in the Air Force, right? <laughs> it probably says something about the person you were pulled over by. Yeah, exactly. Being a current police officer, but it sounds like you got out. I mean, it sounds like you were struggling with some some mental health issues at the time. So I wonder, do you see it um, in a positive light that you got a deployment as an option instead of going to jail? Because going to jail that that's going to ruin a big part of your life. You're going to have a felony. Post-traumatic stress would definitely get worse oh, in that situation. In jail, but it's also going to get worse on another deployment too. So right. like weighing your options there, or at least mask it. I think <clears throat> that too. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, and I'm I'm absolutely at a point in my life where I recognize everything that has happened to me in the past has mm. has happened so perfectly to get me to where I am today. Mm-hmm. You know, without those conditions being met, then I wouldn't I wouldn't be um, involved with Agape Church. You okay. know, I wouldn't I wouldn't have had had the need to discover the healing properties or the spiritual properties of plant medicines, Mm. you know, had everything gone well, I'd probably still be in the air force, Sure, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that was the track that I was on while I was active duty. I was, I was high speed, you know, for, for my career. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not normal for an enlisted person to be an engineer for satellite communications. It's usually an officer's duty, but that was elevated after my DUI. They dug into my record and they were like, dude, this guy knows what he's doing. We're going to, as punishment, we're bringing you to the engineering office. And I was just like, that sounds cool. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, I don't have to set up stuff anymore. Yeah. I'm just doing the planning, you know, and the logistics. And and that's actually what allowed me to... Um, to explore the civilian sector, mm. you know, so it was a blessing in disguise, yeah. and it sucked because by the same token, the Air Force had just kicked off the that guy program, oh, like okay. for DUIs yep. and DWIs. So the first time they came to Robbins Air Force Base, I knew all the answers because I had just been through a DUI, and the guy was like, "Why do you know so much about DUIs?" I was like, I, "Because I'm that guy. I just got one." Yeah, the that yeah. guy campaign. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, yeah. don't be that guy. Don't you know? be He's that like, guy. Here I am. You know, yeah. like it's yeah. a good campaign. It probably cost a billion dollars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So, so you're doing logistics and planning um, for for combat comms as well right, now. Exactly. So now you're on the logistics side of everything, right? Yeah, and and partly because be, be, when I got in trouble um, and had to deploy again, it wasn't with my own unit; it was with a sister company. You okay, know? like so. So it ended up the next available deployment I had to hop on. So, um, so that was interesting, and and I ended up fulfilling a uh, an E six role, you know, as an E four, mm-hmm. like to to kind of comply with this request, and and that ended up um, really like giving me the leadership um, potential that that was available in that moment, you know, like yeah. like it was supposed to be a failure. They were they were trying to get rid of me mm-hmm. by by setting me up for a failure, you know, in that way. And you rose to and the challenge. And I rose to the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I end up uh, and it annoyed the the colonel that I that I deploy with so much. He thought I was a, a dirtbag, you know, mm-hmm. like he absolutely did. So he was just like I'm going to make your life hell the entire time. And then I kept getting called to to command for awards and recognition for for the job I was doing and he's like, "Well, you can't go without me." You know, and like make sure to say <laughs> Make sure to say that you're with me, and like, it's like, what? what? Yeah, terrible yeah, leading to the point. Leadership quality, even worse, man. Like, because I, I fulfilled an E6 role, I put myself in for an E6 award, and he stripped my bullet points off of my uh, award submission, and he said, "Well, these these are going on my awards, so you need to figure out what what you're going to put in the place of oh. these." 
He was like, and I'm never going to give an E4 an, uh, an award that an E6 deserves. And I was like, well, you, you didn't have any issue with me doing the job of the E6. Like, <laughs> yeah. what is the problem, you know? Like, so yeah, that guy, um, I would love to have a conversation with that guy just to, just to figure out where his head was in that, in that instance and what the, what the lesson that he was trying to instill in me mm -hmm. was, you know, because it, for me, it doesn't make any sense to, to well, take that approach. Unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, their objective is not to give a lesson. It's <laughs> self-absorbed and yeah. to take care of themselves. It sounds to me like you drafted the bullets <laughs> right. and he stole them right, <laughs> and said, come up with new ones. Yeah. That's, that is not leadership in yeah. any capacity. That or he had a lot of preconceived notions about who he thought you were, right? right. Yeah. Here's this guy coming from another unit, got a DUI. He's getting sent to me, so they're probably sending me the the shitbag airman, right? Right. That's, mm. But it could be the train of thought. Then he never got an opportunity, or he never took the time to get to know who you are. Right. right of course. Right. Yeah, and that's what I suspect. You yeah. know, and and even after, even after we had to work very closely with each other too, because I was in every meeting, every planning meeting with him. You mm -hmm. know, so. So I feel like there was there was that time afforded, but the the guard never dropped with yeah. him, you know. And and of course, you know, he's he's uh, at the time a lieutenant colonel, you know, that was up for for a promotion. Okay. So I think more so than anything, similar to the drill sergeant, you know, like he knew that that's and it, it was it was the fuel that was building the fire mm. in in my performance, you know. Like I'm not the person that throws his hands up because someone doesn't believe in me. My my. You know, my character is to rise to the occasion mm. and and show you that I am capable of whatever it is that that you expect of me. Sure. Mm. So, talk about your transition out of the military and into uh, into your civilian job. So, you became a contractor shortly after. You said you were afforded some opportunities to be exposed to that on your last deployment. So, right. what was the transition like out for you? Do you have any struggles there? And it was it was seamless, you know, okay. like and and because I I came home to out process and I went straight back to Afghanistan. So there was like mm -hmm. a maybe a a 3-month window like that where I had to go into to uh the telecommunication systems was the name of the company at the time. They're they're no longer. Um, I I don't think that they're that they're still in operation. But okay. they um, they had a training process for me to go through um, on a specific terminal that that was foreign to us. You know, mm -hmm. the army had just bought this terminal. It was a flyaway terminal, um, very portable. You know, that that had the capabilities of sustaining a cop or a fob. Hmm. So I had to learn this new system and learn it in and out because my job as in the civilian sector was to make it work no matter what, you know? Okay. So, mm -hmm. so there's, there's some really interesting stories about some of the tactics. I used a, a piece of gum wrapper because I didn't have solder to, to sustain <laughs> communications long enough to let people know that we needed solder, you oh. know, like, so it was <laughs> like, it, it didn't last very long, but I, I got the, the transmission out, you know? Yeah. But um, like really interesting creative like I, I absolutely loved that role and mm -hmm. because it was me and the equipment kind of talking to each other and figuring out you know how to how to keep the conversation going for the people that needed communications you know sure. so um so that transition was very fast and very seamless mm -hmm. and uh, I found myself flying to to, to um to Afghanistan, you know, and, and taking a different course. Like we ended up um, stopping in, in um, oh my God, what is the name of it? I'm, I'm at a loss, not Abu Dhabi. Qatar? No, no, Kuwait? it's uh, it's like one of the richest cities in the world. 
the, Dubai. Um, Dubai. Dubai. Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the first the first uh, trip I went to to Dubai was as a nice. civilian, and they put me up in this this massive hotel room oh, yeah. that like looked like a an apartment, you know. Like I was just like blown away, and like thinking in my head, like like man, I wish that that Lieutenant Colonel could see where I'm at now. Like, screw the bullet point, you <laughs> yeah, know, right? Yeah, yeah, just kind of like thirtieth floor view. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it was it was interesting, you know. Like that part of it for me was was very rewarding. Like mm-hmm. to to at least feel like a value to to the um, to the job that I was performing. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get that that um, in in the military, you know, because they're always it's always a beat you down situation. Mm-hmm. Like even when you're high speed or a good old boy, it's like yeah, but you're still a you know an E six or an E four. Yeah. Like yeah. you know, there's always that check of uh, check and balance, if you will, of of um, hierarchy. So so yeah, it was it was nice. And then the biggest thing for me in the in the civilian sector that was impactful is is no weapon. You know, like we, I could have a knife with less than a six inch blade and that's it. You know, like, so no pistol, no, no rifle, no anything, just, just, uh, my own hands to defend myself and, and something to poke somebody with, you know, and that's it. So it was, it was learning to put a lot of faith in the people around me, you know, and I found myself in a very similar situation where, where I was at a, at a cop and it was, it was they flew me in and I don't know why you would tell somebody this, but they're like, look, it's supposed to get overrun. Like, so, you know, send an email to your family and let them know like that this cop may be overrun, but you, the communications is a key. So you have to go out and fix this snap terminal. I was like, Oh my God. Like, okay. (laughs) I'll just put my knife in my mouth and (laughs) run off and Rambo it. And, And even worse, the, the, uh, the flight pattern, the the helicopter wasn't returning for eight days. Like, so no matter what, I was there for eight days. So I was there. It took me an hour and a half to fix the the terminal. I was like, are you sure you can't just come back? You know, like, I know, I know just you like, went how about, to How about wait? Yeah. <laughs> I just, uh, I just was paying so much attention to, to like my availability of leaving that situation, you mm-hmm. know? Like, so I remember finding like the corner of, of the base and just saying, this is where I'm going to sleep. You know, I don't need anything. You just sleep them here. If anything happens to the terminal, let me know. And I, I remember trying to sleep for eight days, you know, like yeah. so my job was done, you know. And then it got to a point where like, you know, one of the people had a guitar there. So one of the nights I came out and I started getting to know people. And that that for me was eye opening. Mm. And it kind of instilled the the understanding that there was an observer role that I was that I was supposed to be in in those moments too you know to better understand what these you know infantry people were going through yeah so I took it as an opportunity to get to know like what what it is they were being exposed to how that was affecting them what their stories were and and mm-hmm. kind of held that in my heart for the rest of the time you know and that became my motivation to get the job done yeah you know so rather than like you know fixating on my own you know well-being it became like this family mentality for me for the first time ever you know in that situation I was just like you know I'm not the only human being that's here right now you yeah. know and and there's a lot to, a lot to learn for especially in the conditionings of the mind mm-hmm. on how to cope with these things because I was only there for eight days but those guys they were fulfilling their their one year in that copper fob, yeah. 
you know? So it was like, mm-hmm. get over yourself, man. You know, like they, if they're going to get overrun, it's because it's what they built that is going to be overrun, mm-hmm. you know? So imagine, you know, the hardships of that. And like, that's, that's a lot of weight to bear. Yeah, that, and it, it sounds like you, you've found that the moment you stopped focusing on yourself and you started focusing on other people, it made it a little bit easier for you because you're focused on your own well-being and man, like I'm at this fob, like this sucks. And then you look at these guys sitting right next to you, you're like, well, like it's been sucking for them a lot longer, a lot harder. Like yeah. I really don't have it that bad at the end of the day. No, exactly. No. And it comes to a realization that everybody smells like baby wipes. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like everyone's here sucking at exactly. the same time. Yeah. It's, no, exactly. Isn't that something that you didn't really experience in your time in? Not, not to that extent, like, because the missing, the real missing factor was that I, I was a asset, you know, like I, I a hundred percent was an asset, so I didn't have a weapon. Mm. So what, what really changed, even with an M9, you know, I always, I always say if it ever got to a point of me using the M9, I probably would have given it to them, you know, like, Hey, like, (laughs) here you go. I don't want any trouble, you know, like, like that's the honest to God truth, because Mm. that means a lot of other heavier you know, weaponry didn't mm-hmm. stop the enemy, you yeah, know, like, yeah. so let's get real, you know, in that moment, I probably would have been a captive, mm-hmm. you know, so, so in either case, you know, not having anything at all to defend yourself with other than the people that are around you is, is faith-based, you yes. know, like that's, that's it is. nothing but faith. Mm-hmm. You're, you're believing that the training of a complete stranger is enough to, to save your life. You know, and, and for me, that was that was the big difference uh, between, you know, going from from the active duty, you know, exposure, because mm-hmm. it was the same areas I had already been there. Some of the same people were still there, mm-hmm. you know, when I came as a civilian. So that part of it wasn't foreign to me. Okay. What was foreign is is not having any means of defending myself other than the people around me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, how long did you do as a, as a civilian in Afghanistan? I was there um, for a year and two months. Oh wow! Yeah, and and, and uh, at Salerno, okay. like, and and all of Eastern Afghanistan is what I managed. So there was it was like 130 terminals. Like mm. so, I kind of just flew um, around on on a helicopter the entire time, and uh, I worked directly with the Rakasans while I was there. So okay. so they they're an active group, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and they kept me busy. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was really interesting. So a year was all you wanted to do? Yeah. And, and you know, being a satellite communication, being involved in communications, it gives you one of the biggest privileges in theater and in, in being able to communicate with your family. So mm. at that time I had my son was uh, about two years old. And uh, every single night I was able to Skype with him, mm. you know, so we had video calls together and mm-hmm. uh, it got to a point close to the end of my deployment where I received a picture in an email and it was of my son hugging a laptop, like calling the laptop daddy. And I was like, man, my son is associating our relationship with a device, you know, like, so I started exploring this was probably like two months before the end of my, my term, you know, and I was already getting offers and, and like, you know, if you want to stay, this is the, this is what we're willing to give you situations. So I had, you know, a really hard decision in front of me, you know, and, and I decided, you know, to leave satellite communications altogether mm. because the necessity for satellite communications is only in austere conditions. 
where there aren't other means of communications available, sure. you know, which means there's no civilian, like civilization, you know, that that is nearby. So, so I had to to put the last you know seven years aside, like mm-hmm. of all all of my training and stuff, and and I came back to my family owned uh, business, you know. At that time, my parents had grown their agency out of the small town into uh, into the Rio Grande Valley, and they opened their second location. So they they needed mm-hmm. help, you know. And and at that time, it started with building a website, you know. So I was like, well, let me build the website, and um, in the time that it takes me to get my insurance license, you know, I'll already have the website done. Okay. Well, I had a lot of time in Afghanistan towards the end, you know. Like mm-hmm. so, it, was, it started getting really quiet. I built the website in like a month. And then I uh, started studying for, for the license when I got back. Mm. I, I took the test and I passed it on, on my first attempt and started selling insurance for them. You know, okay. so that's, I ended up doing that until, uh, until 2019. How'd you was, fare uh, in the sales world? Oh, it was excellent. Yeah, I bet. It was really, really interesting too, because, you know, I look back at at how torturous it was to be going through PTSD, mm-hmm. putting a face like you know in front of yeah, people the mask. all day, like yeah. you have oh, your yeah. life together, you know, and then and then drowning yourself in alcohol. That's literally what my my day looked like, mm. you know. Show in, in, in 2019. Uh, this was from 20, 2011 to 2019, so okay. so almost eight years. I so was you a were insurance agent. No, no, I mean your your PTS and your alcoholism is that tied in to this new position with your family owned business? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. There was, um, you know, it started while so I was- So we haven't addressed any of the issues at this point. Right, We've exactly. gone through seven years <laughs> and all of a sudden it's probably like, it's time. For sure. Mm-hmm. No, and, and you know, I remember my first episode with PTS was while I was in Georgia. I had just gotten back from my first deployment and, uh, I think the noise that I heard, like looking back at the scenario, was a car backfiring. Okay. But I 100% believed that my house was being attacked. So I was crawling on the ground on all fours. You know, my my wife at the time was telling me like that what I was hearing and what I was seeing was not real. You know, so I was like, just go wait in the bedroom, you know, like, let me, let me make sure everything is okay. And I, I literally, I called the cops and I told them that somebody was, was shooting in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, so I finally believed that it wasn't happening directly to me, but I, I was assured that, that there was gunfire and it, I continued to hear it like, and, and, you know, my, my wife at the time didn't, you know, mm-hmm. so, so there was that, that moment when it passed, you know, after like probably two hours of me crawling around and like the cops come, I talk to the cops about it. I give a report. And uh, when they left, I remember just thinking how ridiculous it was. I was like, you're in, you're in middle Georgia, you know, like the, the sound that it made, like it would have been like a, a artillery round, Yeah, you know, like, and, and that's not at all mm-hmm. available to, <laughs> to regular criminals, yeah. you know, like, come on, what is, what, what yeah. is this about? You know? So I chose to ignore it though. I, I thought it was a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and really to that extent it was, you know, I think at that point, because I had just gotten back from my deployment, I was still kind of trying to find my baseline, mm-hmm. but, yeah. um, it was very much the eye opener for me. And, uh, and I started remember having the conversations with with my peers, and everyone just kind of was like, you know, just 
just have another beer, you know, yeah. like just, just yeah, drown just, yourself in it, you know, know, like because, and I remember the threat being, if you look for help, you can't deploy. Exactly. And there was nothing yeah. more shameful for me than that, like not mm-hmm. being able to perform my duty, you know, especially, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm not infantry. So I shouldn't, like in my head, I kept suggesting yeah. to myself that what I was feeling wasn't real because I wasn't in the front lines, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, it was, so interestingly enough, uh, you know, we, we find that, uh, infantry instills a certain resilience. It, it, it instills an expectation mm-hmm. of what you're going to go into. So a lot of like non-combat arms, uh, you know, they're like, ah, I'm just going to be working on satellite communications. Like th- nothing's going to happen. So you don't have that expectation, that wall to be built up, that protection. So a lot of times you get exposed to it without even being recognized. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's so so it's interesting uh, to see the kind of differences between that. No, it's the absolutely. same thing. We, we we talk about this quite often. It's like a, a military member versus a civilian in a car accident, right? Mm-hmm. Civilian with a car accident, more often than not, will have more severe PTSD than a military member if they're like an infantry person or a special operator who's prepped and they've been prepared for it. They've been expecting it. Then they go do it. They come back. It's it's over. As a civilian in a car accident, you're just going to work on the way in the morning and boom, you have this horrible thing that happens that changes your life. You have no expectation for it. And people in like non-combat arms positions like that, like Dave said, you're you're not necessarily expecting it. So you've not been able to prepare yourself in the the appropriate ways. You've not been able to put those walls up and pre-compartmentalize. And the people that you have to, to talk to, your supervisors and everything, probably also don't have very much experience with proper mm-hmm. compartmentalization, mm-hmm. how to make it through these things, who to talk to appropriately. So there's a lot that I think there's a, a disservice to like uh, combat arms support roles, specifically mm-hmm. like yours, right? Right. A lot of guys that go outside the wire and experience a lot of things that they weren't ready for, I think the military can do a much better job of, of prepping than just the mock deployments where put your gas mask on. Like, <laughs> it yeah. doesn't do anything for you. Right, it's, exactly. it's the same exact thing with sexual trauma victims as yes. well yeah. within the military is, you know, their NCO, um, you know, comes on to them or whatever the case may be. They don't expect that from their own team. And that, yeah. that hurts even more and it, it deeply scars you. So yeah. I think, that is completely right. What Christian said is it's a disservice and we need to be mentally preparing all of those who go into the service, regardless of what their skill set is, on the mental health capacities of what you could expect to face. Yeah. I think the Marines do a good job of that because every Marine's a rifleman, right? And every Marine will tell you that. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> every Marine and, will and, tell you and they're, Yeah, they're yeah. instilled kill, kill, kill. Yeah. Yeah. So they know what to expect at the end of the day. Yeah. Right. So yes. absolutely, yeah. um, interesting concept to, to really like bring to light to our audience, I think. No, of course. Yeah. And, and, uh, I remember interestingly enough, when I was having the conversation around my, my disability qualifications, um, for one, I masked it so well that they were about to, to say that there was nothing wrong with me. And in that moment I broke down and started crying and, and the psychologist was like, what's, what's, with you, man, you know, like what happened? Yeah. And I was like, I have to, I have to tell you the reason I started this process because I know something's wrong with me. And as soon as I stepped into your office, I just wanted to convince you that I was, I was a good guy. Yeah. Like, so I haven't been honest, you know? And he was like, well, you want to start over? And I was like, absolutely. Mm. And he's like, well, 
what is the what is the impact? We go through the the initial checklist, you know, mm-hmm. like how much are you drinking, how much sleep are you losing, and things like that. I answered truthfully, and he was like, "Man, you're a completely different person at this point. Yeah. We have to start completely over." Mm-hmm. And he was like, "I can't believe that you were like, you know, you just kept composed the way that you did." I was like, "I've been doing it for you know twelve years." Yeah. You know, I've been hiding this for 12, I've, I've become a master at, at acting like nothing is wrong with me. I was mm-hmm. like, if you want to know mm-hmm. the truth, feel my pulse. And he grabbed my wrist and he was like, my heart was racing. But then on the exterior, I look like like absolutely a cucumber, you know, mm-hmm. just, yeah. just chill. Yeah, so it was it was interesting to go through that process of, of again, recognizing that I was in my own way, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in this process, you know, mm-hmm. like just kind of inflicting my own wounds, trying, asking for help and then saying, I'm good, yeah. you know, like was, was not the, it was a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. So it, um, it, it was, it brought a lot of clarity to, to the severity of the situation too, you know, like where, where I was living two lives mm-hmm. and, um, and I had to change, I had to do something about it, mm-hmm. you know? So, so that was a really interesting part of my process too, that I think a lot of people go through. Another thing was, was bringing into the realization that, you know, I also had to feed, um, I had to feed video to, to, uh, fighter pilots Mm -hmm. like so if they dropped a a missile they needed to confirm the kill and in that moment i had to watch the monitors so that we can make sure that the feed didn't drop okay you know like to sustain communications like so i saw a lot of of human beings turn white hot you know Mm -hmm. on monitors and people don't realize what that does to you you know because again coming back to infantry you expect the PTSD to be coming from direct contact with people yeah mm-hmm. but for me watching somebody scale a mountain because they hear a jet coming tripping falling you know and then all of a sudden you see a boom and then they confirm the kill because there's a warm spot on the side of a mountain not yeah. a human being is just as impactful you know yeah it is a lot of the the drone pilots and drone operators out of New Mexico. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> New Mexico. Yeah, and then uh, yeah. go home to their family barbecues after doing that. You know, and yeah, I, so I, every single day you spend. You imagine that five days a week, and and they're not not to. <laughs> this is a published number, but ninety percent, ninety percent of drone strikes are are on the incorrect target. Right, published number. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like to look back on it, to deal with it while it's happening, and then. After ten years pass or twelve years pass, however long you're you're doing something like that, look back on it and to have these numbers come out like it's got to be really hard to process things like that. And we've all seen mm-hmm. the the drone feed and pred feed and the talk and, and collateral like, damage. So even ten yeah. percent of those targets have collateral damage yeah. as well to it. Yeah. So it's uh, it's hard to see. It no, is. absolutely, and especially like when you're not reinforced to believe it, right? When we watch, mm-hmm. you know. It, it's it's very interesting because the same kind of concept happens on Call of Duty, right? We don't have that feeling and that association, mm-hmm. but you know when you when you feel it on the other end and you see that perspective, something much like what you saw when you talked to those infantrys when you sat for eight days with them is you understand that there's a face behind it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like people that have that kind of self awareness have an even more predispositioned like personality trait of being hit a little harder by that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and another in- interesting observation that I had in, in those conversations is watching the emotions surface 
and then get completely battered down to, to you know, battle-hardened, you know, mm. infantrymen. You know, like, so yeah. you start getting personal with these people. They start telling you how much they're worried about their family. And then all mm. of a sudden they, they smother it with, like, you know, hyper-masculinity, yeah. basically. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, and just like, well, whatever, I'll just do push-ups and, you know, like, or something like Change that. Change the socks. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Drink yeah. some water. So, so it was interesting to see, like, the humanity fight for itself, you know, for mm-hmm. just, a, just a moment, enough for you to recognize it and then, and then just completely get, you know, shut down. There's, I mean, a, there's a psychological explanation, though, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it, it is a benefit to, one, indoctrinate your military members into having pride in the military unit that they're within. It's a cult. It's a cult. It is. It is. It is a cult. It's a successful, the most successful cult. Yeah. If you instill a warrior ethos and a warrior mindset, like, hey, you should be cheering every time you get a kill and implant that and then back it up, reinforce it. And now what have you done? You've made it safer for them to go and expose themselves to this a little bit. Right. Right. They're excited that they get to do this and it, it, makes them a much more deadly soldier. It makes them a much more efficient soldier. And it's going to increase that longevity a little bit. It's the back end that we still haven't seen. Yeah, and then reintegrating them back into society and saying, oh, that's not good anymore. Like we taught you how to take lives, but now you have to blend back in. And that that's the problem, right? The two week transitionary period (laughs) that you took to get out of the military so we're 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 seeing this like quite often, right? right. Every yeah. guest that we talk to, <laughs> right? No, it's it's sad. It's sad uh, that that's. I mean, that's collateral damage of mm-hmm. performing your duty. You know? Yeah. Like absolutely. But um, you know, and then really to tie this into to my role now, you mm-hmm. know, like what what concerns me about the successes that that scientists are finding in the effectiveness of using our sacraments like ayahuasca and and psilocybin um bufal various mm-hmm. and uh, and san pedro as effective means of overcoming uh, post-traumatic stress disorder we're also seeing the military see this as an opportunity to send people back into battle yes. you know so the reason that that the military is looking into things like ketamine and mdma is because they believe that they can that one save a lot of money on on disability payments you know like if they can uh, that's that's one concerning thing about psilocybin that i've read in articles is they're they're poising it as psilocybin cures ptsd mm. so if they're curing ptsd and i say ptsd because that's how they're referring to it i refer to it as pts but if you look for the article it'll be a ptsd article um, so in those moments, what they're actually saying is everybody line up for this wonder drug so that we can strike PTS off of your disability. Absolutely. You know, and it's being masked as, as a good yeah. deed. And this is, this is just big pharma as well that mm-hmm. I'm sure you're seeing starting to take advantage. Now, these pharmaceutical companies are funding the research behind this now because they're going to go ahead and re- refurbish and reformat how this looks. No, exactly. This kind of and, and for me, that's exactly why the focus is on the pharmaceutical and psychedelics, which yeah. are MDMA and ketamine. Yeah. You know, and then even psilocybin, mm-hmm. you know, being reduced down to psilocin is what they're studying. Mm-hmm. You know, the chemical, what they can reproduce in a laboratory is what interests them, which yeah. is only being driven by, by big pharma. You and know? that yeah. takes away from... 
the holistic properties as well of this plant-based medicines. No, exactly. And and there's a lot that that's the single alkaloid that causes the the um, the psychedelic experience and all of the all of the the plants that it was stripped from, right? The psilocin. Yeah, yeah the psilocin. So what ends up happening is all the other like comparable or not not comparable but complementary mm-hmm. alkaloids that are that are mm-hmm. present in in this natural plant are not being afforded to the person who is receiving it yeah you know so we're it's saying like sucking this out all the be. nutrients exactly yeah. 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 yeah no exactly it's like instead of putting milk in your cereal you put calcium in your cereal yeah exactly. you know like who's going to eat that bowl of cereal yeah. you know and get the same the, the same results you mm-hmm. know it's it's not possible so it's so that for us is concerning you know, like especially because we have a direct spiritual relationship with with these plants that we work with. Mm-hmm. You know, so so seeing even the setting reduced down to a conversation that's being had with you in the middle of your experience for mm-hmm. me is is a disjustice to, mm-hmm. or injustice too. You know, this is an exploratory effort of the spiritual being. You know, like so, who am I? To, to try to guess what it is that you're going through. Yeah. You know, I can't have an, an inkling of an idea. Mm-hmm. And it, that has come, uh, become incredibly clear for me in working with veterans, mm-hmm. you know, because most veterans come to plant medicines because of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Yeah. But when they come to plant medicines, the initial conversation is always like, I don't want to relive what it is that I experienced. I was like, man, a majority of people won't until they're ready to. You know, what you're going to expect is everything that led up to you signing your life away to begin with. You know, a majority of the people that joined the military mm. have um, have gone through a very specific traumas in their childhood, yeah. you know, that led them to make that decision for them. You know, and this is all documented. It's researchable. Like, so it's um, it's important for people to understand that, you're you're basically going to be able to to look at why you were unable to to compartmentalize these mm. situations in your life and why they are so impactful for you and it's likely because you weren't you weren't actually ready to be in the military mm. you know like you you were suffering from childhood trauma you yeah. were suffering from you know yeah. a broken household things like that are are what instill those those behaviors where like you're like wait a second this is not this is not what I expected and this is that that ends up being what affects your life so heavily mm. yeah well not to not to continue diving too far into the psychedelics portion because I know we're going to talk about that mm. when we talk about the uh, the church and everything but what what led you to seeking psychedelics so obviously you were dealing with your PTSD um, and and alcoholism something pushed you that direction. Yeah, of course. And it was, it was the spiraling out of control because mm-hmm. what, what I ended up doing, I started to recognize my PTSD needing help around 2012. And that's okay. when I started working with the VA. So I was on pharmaceuticals from 2012 to 2019, mm-hmm. like on, on 11 different prescriptions, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, and come trying to take the route that they were suggesting to overcome. And it, it was very, very effective. You know, mm. like I, I remember my life being more manageable for a short period of, of that time. Yeah. You know, and, but and it's still it, nine years. Exactly. Of 11 prescriptions. Right. Yeah. And, and so it, it became a me being stripped of my personality, me mm-hmm. being stripped of my character, and me just being a busy bee, you know, like being able to perform my day to day tasks without a face, you know, without mm-hmm. any emotion. 
So it was, um, it was a really interesting, you know, observation period for me because once I started noticing that, excuse me, that I didn't have a personality anymore, I I started reaching for it with alcohol and drugs, Mm. you know, and that was the only time that I could feel something again. So I was drinking, you know, abusively, you know, to my body and, uh, and heavily, like it was, Mm -hmm. it was normal for me to go through a bottle of liquor in a day, Mm. you know, so it was, um, it was being chased with recreational drug use and, and all of it seemed to, to come to a crash, you know, in, in a single period in my life where thankfully I didn't hurt anybody. Thankfully I didn't hurt myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I found myself in, in the situation where, I was um, I was treating you know some some mortgage brokers and like I was an insurance agent so so I did you know referral uh, sourcing and things yeah. like that and okay. we took people out for drinks all the time you know so we stayed out till like four in the morning this particular evening wow and my son had an award ceremony the next morning right so when I got home I thought it was a brilliant idea to keep drinking and using drugs so that I could stay awake rather than pass out and and oversleep right. So I attempted to do that and probably got pretty close to doing that. But I passed out, you know, on the couch and I woke up at like three in the afternoon and my son was sitting down right next to me watching cartoons. And as soon as I woke up, he was like, oh, good. Now we can go to the award ceremony. And I looked uh. at my clock and it was three o'clock and we were supposed to be there at nine in the morning. And it was mm. like my heart broke in half, man. Mm. That's when I decided like, this is not working for me. Mm. I need to find something else, you know? Good. So I started looking at, um, like first my initial medicine became cannabis, you know, like mm. I, I started using cannabis for a very short period because it, it wasn't effective at all for me, you know, but I gave it a chance but when you start doing your research, it is highly recommended for PTS to, to smoke cannabis, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and it was available to me at the time. So I was like, you know what, let me give this a shot. And then uh, that research got, you know, snowballed into, into other, uh, even like I, at some point I got lost in ancient aliens, you know, like it was just <laughs> kind of one of those rabbit holes that you find yourself like yeah. on a Joe Rogan podcast or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it was, um, it was very interesting, but nonetheless, uh, in, in one of those ancient alien uh conversations somebody talked about being able to see aliens with ayahuasca in the comments and i was like what is ayahuasca that yeah. sounds awesome uh, you know so i i started elves <laughs> i started doing the research and and there's a bunch of research tied to ayahuasca being effective for post traumatic stress and mm. hypervigilance social anxiety all of it so i was like this is me man this is this is hope so in that moment i started looking at going to to peru and i was i was dead set on it, you know, like I, I started planning my trip. And then in that, in that research, I found out that there's entheogenic churches in the United States that use ayahuasca as sacraments, yeah. like very similar to ours now, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I took my trip to Florida. I had my first experience and I never took another uh, pharmaceutical again. Never again. Yeah. I came home and I flushed 11 prescriptions down the toilet and I just committed myself to the spiritual path. You know, I started going back regularly, mm. you know, and uh, it got to a point where I stopped uh, sitting on the mat, you know, and I started volunteering. Mm. And uh, that led into me, you know, being certified as an in- integration guide for psychedelics as a whole. I entered into a one year program and I'm like, talk about a blessing in disguise, COVID. 
COVID oh, yeah. is the only reason I was able to do that. Mm-hmm. Like we closed our office and we worked from home, mm-hmm. you know, and at that time I had enough residual income, like from, from sales and insurance. I didn't make another sale that entire year. I just dedicated myself to, to learning with this new passion, you know, and I kept involved with integrating for veterans and working with the wellness retreat Alliance out of, out of Florida too. And, um, you know, offering private retreats for veterans and things like that. And uh, eventually that led me to meeting my wife, Raquel. You know, she had started uh, a community here in Houston. And uh, when we were, when that travel started to, to become a burden for me, you know, I was, it was residual income, so it wasn't endless, you know? Yeah. And then like right around October, it's really hard to sell home insurance, you know, mm-hmm. like, because everyone's like back to school and the holidays. So there's not a lot of home sales. So that was my slow period, mm-hmm. you know, like, so I started feeling how expensive it was to fly mm-hmm. back and forth to Florida. So I remember telling Justin, like, listen, I can't keep doing this. You know, I need to find something closer to home. And he was like, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you reach out to our sister community in Houston? I was like, what the hell, Justin? <laughs> Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> it's yeah. been a year, dude, that I've been coming back and yeah, forth. And yeah. like, there's another community, you know? And he was like, no, it's it's new, you know? Like, it's it's been around for, for just uh, several months. Okay. It's like, so, I, and they don't have an integration program. So, you know, maybe that's your in. So I was like, yeah. dude, uh, this is perfect, you know? So I end up, you know, and I know we're going to dive deeper into this, so I won't go completely into the story just to save, you know, for the conversation that, that we'll be having in the future. But uh, nonetheless, it, it was just, uh, it seemed like all of it just started building up to, to yeah. get me to where I am today, you know, in, in front of a bunch of people who are just like me, um, seeing seeing the uh, the hope that, that there's a way to overcome their... Yeah. their ailments and their limitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. It's another, it's, it's a common trend on this show, but it's another fantastic example of the darkest point in your life leading to the brightest moment in your life, right? And by by you not shying away from the challenge, by by you rising to the occasion, right? Hey, I'm experiencing these things. I need to do it better for myself, better for my son, better for my family. How do I do that? You found a way and it, like, use it as a springboard for yourself and for your family to, to better others. Uh, it's, it's a classic example on the show. We, we see it time and time again. And every time I'm blown away, like the adversity yeah, builds resilience. Yeah, that's exactly absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And once it happens, it all starts to make sense why you went through it in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. why like the majority of the conversation I have with, with the, the military or even first responders that come to us without hope is like, look, all of this is happening to build you up to something much greater in mm-hmm. your life, you know, yeah. like so that you you don't have a question that you can handle what's in front of you, you know, like because you'll remember all the things that you've been through, you know. So it's one of the hardest lessons to accept and to mm-hmm. learn from, you know, but nonetheless, if you can if you can just get past this moment in your life, you know, then you then you'll understand exactly why all of it all of it was just planned perfectly to to build your future, you know, a mm. brighter future. Fantastic. Well, we appreciate you for sharing, man. I, I, I can't yeah. wait to dive into the next episode <laughs> so we could hear uh, more about this and the work that we could do to help our veterans and first responders. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Thanks for sharing your story today, Sergio. And uh, thanks for joining us. No, of course, it's been a pleasure, absolute pleasure. And, and we look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. One last thing, where can we find you at? 
Ooh, I'm all over the place. So we have we have a website for Agape. It's Agape, the number four, smb.com. Uh, our program, Agape Heroes, which services veterans and first responders, has a page on there as well. Um, on social media, you know, on, on Instagram, I go by Faith in Entheogens. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a TikTok for my music. I'm really, really involved for, for what I do. You can yeah. find my music at Sergio Signs Music on TikTok and uh, really all over the place. Awesome. Um, and then we, we actually just started our podcast for Agape yeah. Heroes called the Heroes of Agape podcast. Okay. Um, that's going to be featuring testimonials of people who go through our program as well as uh, people that are involved in supporting the program and, mm. and bringing that into an awareness. Fantastic. Um, so, so yeah, and like I said, I'm, I'm, wherever you're at, I'm at. So, so feel free to reach out and I'd love to hear from you guys. Agape, A-G-A-P-E. That's correct. It means love. It's uh, unconditional love. Unconditional love. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic <laughs> name. Well, thank you very much, Sergio. We appreciate you and we'll uh, see you here shortly. Yeah, thank you. See you again. Right. Of course. This has been the Medivac Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us today. Please keep in mind, uh, you got something out of this. I know you did. Share it, like it, engage with the video, tell us who you want to see next, what topics you want us to cover, and uh, we'll get back to you. Until next time. Bye.